Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. My guest today probably doesn't need a long introduction. She is the exceptional Teresa Griffin, former British and European member of the European Parliament, who has always put citizens at the heart of the political processes. Teresa was a member of the European Parliament from 2014 to 2020. She was the 2017 Energy MEP of the Year for work addressing energy poverty. She's always called for greater ambition in urban policies for a just transition that leaves no worker community or young person behind. She worked as a legislator on the energy performance of building directive and ensured that fire safety was included in her remit after the Grenfell disaster in the UK. Today, Teresa works with a number of organizations, including FEEDS, the Forum for Urban Electric Safety, of which she's the president. Teresa, welcome. I'm so grateful and honored that you are with me today. It's lovely to see you again, Maureen. Thank you so much, Teresa. So, Teresa, you've been quite a pioneer in understanding the links between energy poverty and climate policies. And, of course, the issues at stake are incredibly high. But what brought you where you are now and what are your drivers really in this battle? I was a city councillor in Liverpool at the time when Liverpool was one of the most deprived areas in Europe. And I was doing my surgery and a 27-year-old single mother of three came into my surgery and her energy supply had been disconnected because she couldn't afford to pay the bill. So I didn't know what to do in policy terms at that point. So I took her and her family home with me. So they had a hot meal and somewhere good uh, to stay. But after that, Marine, I swore that I would do everything that I could to stop the disgrace of disconnections and to actually say that energy is not a commodity. It's a basic social right. Well, and when was that? That was in the mid-90s when I was Chair of Economic Development and European Affairs for Liverpool as a city. Then Liverpool was awarded a lot of European structural funds that transformed the city. And what we always did was we put the rights of young people, of excluded groups at the heart of that funding to create high-quality jobs and to make sure that our three-year-old girls with the creative education to actually get them getting the high GDP, clean, green jobs of the future. Wow. And what was the reaction of people, organization, the mayor and really political offices when you said, I mean, this situation is not normal, that this this young lady with three kids uh, doesn't have electricity at home? Because, I mean, now it is quite a topic, you know, with the energy price prices, with the cost of living crisis. So we are hearing that in the news. But at the time, what was the reaction and what were like your real first political steps in, in addressing energy poverty? And then at your brain level? 
Yeah. Well, at at a local level, we work with consumer groups, uh, with civil society to actually put in place protections uh, for people uh, to their energy supply. Uh, But disconnection wasn't unusual then. Uh, People were disconnected from their supply. I mean, it's now much rarer because we have got protections within legislation. So when I went to the European Parliament in 2014, I was determined to put energy poverty into EU legislation. And I workshopped the Social and Democratic Manifesto, working with consumer groups, civil society, trade unions. And because I was a Northern MEP, I stood there and I said, In 2014, nobody should have to choose between eating or heating. And two hands went up, and it was Marine, a Spanish MEP, and a Maltese MEP, Miriam Dali, who is now a minister in Malta. And they said to me, Teresa, do you understand that in the summer in our countries, People who are long-term sick or who are confined to their homes because maybe they are elderly are dying in the summer because they cannot afford to put their air conditioning on. At which point the strapline for the Energy Poverty Manifesto became nobody should have to choose between eating or heating or cooling their homes So suddenly we had legislation that actually mattered right across European countries. It was adopted by the Social Democrats. It was then adopted as policy by the European Parliament. And we then launched the Energy Poverty Observatory. Yeah, I remember I was there at the time uh, in Brussels, in this uh, Brussels discussions, and it was very, very fascinating because until then, energy poverty was totally overlooked. It was a problem of vulnerable consumers, so it was understood as a topic, more like a social topic and not really an energy topic, not, uh, not a political topic, not a climate topic either. So let's say that uh, you policymakers were not uh, realizing how bad the situation was, actually. And uh, recent figures are suggesting that up to 120 million Europeans might be affected by energy poverty. I mean, the numbers for 2021, 2022 will be uh, kind of terrifying. And something that still shocks me is that the European Commission hasn't collected data on summer energy poverty since 2012. So we have this enormous gap in, in knowledge and in the meantime, heat waves are more and more common, even in Northern Europe. So, so the work you did about a decade ago was is still so incredibly relevant. And there are so many things to pushing for so that all policymakers, all organizations, all stakeholders in, involved in, in energy and social issues uh, be engaged in, in really acknowledging the uh, how big the, the phenomenon is. So now you're bringing the topic of fire safety kind of upper on the agenda because it, it has been so far totally underexplored. But as I said, since Grenfell's, the Grenfell disaster a few years ago in the UK, you have really acknowledged how bad the situation was. So why fire safety and why does it matter when we think of addressing energy poverty? 
Uh, thank you, Maureen. I don't think we can divorce social policy, climate policy, poverty policy, and energy policy. They are all actually driven by the same thing, which is about making sure that our most vulnerable citizens are at the heart of legislation and are protected. When the awful tragedy of Grenfell happened in the UK, uh, there was a revision of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. So the next day I went into the rapporteur's office and I said, wherever we're talking about energy efficiency, can we also talk about fire safety? And she said, absolutely. And we wrote fire safety into that legislation. So immediately then I became involved in the European Fire Safety Alliance. Um, as you know, there is a fire safety week every week in the European Parliament. And what's really moving about it is it's driven by firefighters, by fire survivors, by technical people working in fire safety. So it really comes from the heart. Uh, so I continue to be involved with FEEDS, which is the Forum for European Electrical Domestic Safety. When the disaster of Brexit happened, which of course, as you know, was three years ago this week, I still miss you all. Uh, so I became involved with FEEDS because fire safety was something very close to my heart. And it made sense to me, Maureen, because our poorest actually live in the leakiest houses. So our poorest live in the least energy efficiency housing. So they get the absolute double whammy of having higher energy bills because it is more difficult to heat or cool their homes. And often this includes the rental sector, and we mustn't forget the rental sector. It's not just homeowners. So it seemed to me there was a link between energy poverty, energy efficiency, and fire safety. So we did, working with the energy poverty community, a quite detailed study uh, last year. There's still more to be done which actually found about 95% of respondents actually saying there is a link between fire safety and energy poverty. So we have to protect our poorest. So the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, led by Kieran Koff, is going through uh, negotiations in the Parliament at the moment. And it's crucial that we actually put fire safety at the heart of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directives and of the Social Climate Fund so that we have a holistic approach to helping our most vulnerable citizens. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, there are so many people who live in conditions where, let's say, the, the electric supply is uh, really, um, I mean, the home installations are way too close to water, for instance, and that could create some some fires. But it's also about the material that are used for the construction sector that could be very, very inflammable. So there are a lot of risks uh, that are not directly linked to, to energy somehow, or because they, they concern the domestic installations, so or they are about really national norms, etc. But at the end of the day, they concerned the whole picture. And one of the things that I've been 
loving about your work and followed through that it's really this kind of holistic approach that you manage to break silos you manage to have this discussion with the people with very very different backgrounds and say look here there is a problem the problem being uh, that uh, the the poorest are still the one paying and they might be paying for, with their lives and I, I find it extremely moving that you are managed with all your years of experience and expertise and the fact that actually policymakers listen to you because you you were one of them, that you managed to really build this conversation around the fact that they, they had been overlooking something and you and they need to to address things really properly. To be honest, Maureen, I was overlooking it as well until the tragedy of Grenfell. I mean, that's actually what stopped me short and made me think about all of this. And what we're calling for is inspection regimes. So there should be inspections of electrical installations in people's homes. And it's shocking that when you buy a house, everything might be inspected and then maybe nothing is inspected for another 20 years. And I mean, the inspection regimes are different in every different country. So we're calling for inspection regimes at least every five years uh, to keep people safe. And also, everybody wants to keep their family safe. Everybody wants to keep their local community and their home safe. So what we're trying to do is put into legislation what is absolutely right, the ability to keep everybody safe in their own homes. And with the increase in electrification, quite rightly, there are more challenges in terms of keeping people safe. And for goodness sake, never, ever charge anything on a cloth surface. You know, simple messages like that. Just make sure it's on a hard surface. We, we have to teach our children and actually have more fire safety awareness in schools, in my view. Yeah, no, I mean, not uh, charging anything on a close uh, surface is absolutely something we overlooked. I mean, personally, I don't think about that. So thank you. I think our listeners are, are learning something today. Do you have other tips to share? Really, it's inspection regimes. But also, if you go to rent somewhere, get it checked out. When you buy, you generally get it checked out already. But I'm, I'm worried about uh, the rental sector. I'm also worried about some electrical installations actually being quite obsolete if they've been there for longer than five years. And recently I saw somebody charging their car via the window to their house. Now that can't be safe. Uh, so we need yeah. to make sure that, you know, we have enough public EV charging points to make sure that everybody's kept safe. Yeah, absolutely. And when we think about the number of electric appliances, the number of, of things our home gets equipped with, or even the emergence of really solar panels, mini, mini balcony solar panels installation as well, that needs to be uh, accompanied by proper electric installation. It can't be done. I mean, there might be some risk in just buying a solar panel and installing it yourself if you don't have the electric let's say, skills to deal with that and do our proper jobs. Yeah, this is a growth industry. You know, this is an opportunity to create quality jobs to help keep people safe. So indeed, when you are installing something, you need expertise, not only in the person that's installing it, but then 
the person that is inspecting the quality of that installation. And I would just say to everybody, please, please take the time to make sure that it's being done correctly and that it's inspected properly because it's about keeping you and your family safe. Yeah, 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 absolutely. One of the areas you've been working on was really on skills and on making sure people get equipped with the right tools to deal with the energy transition. And but skill and labor shortages, they are quite up on on the agenda. That seems to be a quite a recurring problem that there are no not enough people working on those fields. So are there specific actions that you're promoting in this direction? Uh, certainly the skills agenda is critical to this. And in terms of just transition, we need to reskill and upskill workers that are in industries that are in decline for the new industries of the future. And we know what they are, Marine. You know, we can predict for the next 10, 15, 20 years what those jobs are going to look like and where they're going to be. So what we need to do is to reskill and upskill so that we leave no worker and no community behind. But I would go further than that. We actually need to look at the education of our children and we need to start at three. You know, any later is, is too late to make sure that they have creative education choices that they can actually choose uh, to get jobs in the clean industries. And it's also gender balance, Marine. With the abilities and the equipment we have now, there are no barriers that need to be there in terms of gender to these jobs. So I'd like to see a lot more girls and women in these jobs as well, if I may. That's definitely a great point. And for the time being, there are only 22% uh, of uh, young ladies in STEMs, like in in uh, sciences. So uh, that should be uh, much higher. And I hope that my daughter, who's now two and a half, will choose uh, some scientific activities in, in her future. But uh, that's, of course, a dream for me uh, as a mom. But I, I would strongly encourage her because at the time I was not encouraged you to do sciences either, maybe because I was more inclined to politics and economics, but uh, that's still very, very important to, to showcase that science is also for girls, for women, and no one should ever feel that it's not the right place for them. Exactly. I will come to her graduation if you invite me. Of course, <laughs> that would be absolutely lovely. So, Teresa, what are now, let's say, your the challenges that you think are the biggest at the moment and do you have any ideas how to overcome them? I'm really talking about the climate, energy, uh, nexus and really the priorities of the future. You will have maybe heard today that in the UK, finally, we're getting rid of the scandal of prepayment meters, which mm -hmm. actually... So tell me more. Yeah, so prepayment meters. So if you were poor, they thought that you couldn't afford to pay your bill, you would have a prepayment meter, which meant that you were paying upfront. And some of these meters were being forcibly put into people's homes. Uh, there's an article in the Times today about it. Well done, the journalism there. So that is being stopped. And slowly, we have to stop penalising people because they're poor and help them. You know, access to energy is not a commodity. It's a basic social right to heat food, to be cool in the summer. And as you say, with climate change, everything, weather conditions are getting more and more extreme. 
Therefore, people need more and more protection. And you mentioned 120 people in energy poverty. Maureen, I think that figure is probably too low. It's what we can prove at the moment, but I worry that it's more. And if we think, you know, 120 million people out of 500 million, that's an awful lot of people that we need to protect. And we need to make sure that there are not silos in terms of the European Commission or the European Parliament and committees, and that we work across committees. We work on the skills and education agenda. We work on the fire safety, energy poverty and climate agenda. We do this in terms of industrial policy, which should include all of this. We do this in terms of cultural diversity and gender balance to make sure that legislation is benefiting our most vulnerable consumers. And, you know, we there's a real role for the trade unions in all this as well. So just transition and the structural funds in terms of investment in local communities and local regions, and it all needs to be joined up. And we need, I'm saying we, where the UK is Brexited, I believe that Europe needs a joined up industrial policy uh, and one-stop shops at a local level so people can actually go and get advice and support from people that they trust. Yeah, this is uh, absolutely fascinating and little advertising uh, here. During the week of the 20th to the 24th of February, I, along with uh, many amazing people and organizations, will host the International Energy Poverty Action Week, where we'll, we will be specifically looking at different areas of addressing energy poverty with the speakers and uh, experts from all around the world. It is really the first initiative of, of its kind. It's already the second edition. And we are really happy to team up with the people and organizations from all around the, the globe to uh, to find ways and solutions and think about how to make uh, energy poverty a thing of the best. And about this specific aspect, you were mentioning the, the, the prepaid uh, measure, one of the biggest issues has been so far that the price is higher. Basically, you were paying a higher price for your electricity. And the second thing is that since it works on a, as a top system, many, many people tend to self-disconnect. I mean, at the beginning of the conversation, you mentioned this young lady who had to disconnect because, uh, well, who was disconnected because she couldn't pay. So in the meantime, this new policy emerged that basically you would get uh, this kind of prepaid measure to manage your budget or whatever was said. But she would have ha a disconnect herself because she wouldn't have been able to to top up her measure. But I mean, this kind of measures, they still exist in, in Europe. And I think it's really important to, to make the point that they are not a sustainable solution and they are not a fair solution. They, as far as I know, they exist in Ireland and in Belgium and in Hungary. And they are extremely discriminatory. So would that be your next battle at your level to just get rid of this fake solution? I certainly think it should be a joint battle at European level because what uh, prepay meters actually do is they disenfranchise and poor people have to pay more and it's wrong. So that has been exposed in, in the UK now because of some journalism and an all-parliamentary group on prepay meters in the UK has been set up today by Rachel Maskell, uh, MP. It's all on social media. Literally, this all happened uh, this morning. But absolutely, why should it be 
that if you're poor and you find it difficult to pay, you end up paying more for your energy supply. It doesn't make sense. It's just, as you say, Marine, discriminatory, and we have to stop it. And thank you uh, about talking about the Energy Poverty Action Week. I've got my privilege to uh, speak already at two events during that week. So I hope to see lots of old friends from uh, the energy poverty community. And what we don't have, Maureen, still is an effective definition across Europe of what energy poverty is. Now, I fought for that for a long time. We have sort of definitions. We have things we can apply. But I think we need to be stronger in legislation. Yeah, many grey areas where um, policymakers, where industry representative, etc., they prefer that the situation stays as it is. But given the context with high energy prices, uh, this is extremely challenging uh, to you, and it's it's no longer okay. I mean, it's it's no longer okay to wash our hands on this topic and say that it's uh, that it's just a poor problem. And I think. In my view, there are also some topics that tend to be overlooked in this energy poverty conversation. It's, uh, for instance, the migrants and people with no proper documents. They may not receive the benefits, so they may not receive the protection. Other categories, uh, such as uh, small businesses like SMEs, but they can be also corner shops, uh, they don't receive the, the protection. However, they may have a very high bills. And they might be also places where people socialize, especially when it's cold outside. Or here in Italy, there are also some advertising in the summer for elderly people, asking them to go to the supermarket at the warmest time of the day so that they can cool off. So, you know, all those kind of, of shops, they do have pooling systems and they tend to be forgotten in the, let's say, energy poverty equation or a consumer protection equation. And that's kind of sad that they are not part of the conversation of the of the biggest system as well. So, Teresa, what would be, let's say, your biggest expectation or your biggest also hopes for, for the future? Gosh, there's so much. I would like a joined up European industrial policy that had people at its core and actually benefiting our most impoverished and also being optimistic, Marine. It's not just about doing unto people, it's giving people opportunities so they can access good jobs of the future. It's about levelling up in the truest sense and giving opportunities to everybody that nobody should live in a home that doesn't have an inspection regime for their electrical appliances and installations to make sure that they are safe, that we don't have any more tragedies where people are actually uh, dying because they're living in unsafe buildings. And industry does have a role to play in all of this, Marie. It's not just NGO, society and politics. Industry has a role to play too. And I think we should have warm spaces for our elderly And we should have cool spaces for our elderly. And actually, that should become the new normalcy. That should be what local authorities are doing. That should be what our friends in the trade unions and and the faith movements are doing. And, you know, we should have something which doesn't discriminate 
against people because they're migrants or they're poor or they speak a different language or they don't have access to the right documentation. We've got to have a better world, Maureen. Yeah, no, that's funny that you mentioned this because I was uh, reflecting the other day on on the pandemic and how the impact on our mental health was still unassessed. Also, because I mean, we are still living in the aftermath of that. But thinking really about community places where people can can meet and gather and that are cool in the summer and and warm in the in the winter is actually totally antinomic with the recent COVID mitigation policies. And that's uh, really interesting how, let's say, we we need to get past those pandemic strategies to really construct something that is fairer and more inclusive and more respectful of the individual and their mental health and being together. And it should be part of recovery and resilience plans right across the world. I spoke with a, a group of students on, on Monday night. It was a privilege to be with them, but they were talking about the uh, effect that the pandemic had on their mental health because of isolation. And I think we've got to think a lot more about the effects long term of the pandemic. I know health is going to be a topic in February in Brussels, but uh, I heard a story, uh, I won't reveal who it was, but a friend of mine heard their child on, you know, the two-way speaker that you have to keep your children uh, safe. And she was about three and she said aloud and they heard her, I used to have friends, I used to go to nursery. So got to think an awful lot about the effect that all of this is having on children as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. It's really a long disaster, long-term disaster and challenges that need to be overcome. But as you said earlier, they need to be overcome with the kind of inclusive approach and inclusive uh, and very integrated, uh, that, that's a bit Brussels jargon, but a very comprehensive understanding of what is at stake. And, uh, and for that to really happen, we need energy, we need power. And in, in some, some work that I've done in Africa on energy access, somebody said electricity brightens our lives. And I think that it's even more accurate now, also in our context, when we are privileged enough that you have to think of electricity, we, we tend to believe that it's, it's here and it, all, it will always be here with us. But it actually has this extremely social and uh, powerful impact on our lives and on our socialization and our mental health and really on the quality of our life and our possibility to to thrive as human beings. And also, as you know, I'm a big advocate of more renewable energy. But also, we can't forget energy efficiency in all of this because the cheapest fuel is the fuel you don't use at all. And it's obvious people at the moment that are living in the leakiest and least fire-safe housing. And if you ask what I hope for, Maureen, I hope that if you and I have this conversation again in five years, we can actually say that energy poverty is being eradicated, not just across Europe, but across the globe. 
That's exactly what we try to do also with the International Energy Poverty Action Week. And I hope many of our listeners will register today for it. And in any case, if you listen to this podcast in uh, 2024, all the conversations uh, would, uh, will have been recorded and you will be able to find them on, on YouTube as well. So uh, that's really um, like interesting steps to make, to uh, acknowledge and to build something uh, that is uh, is long-term and the, that goes beyond individual field of interest, research, industry, etc. But that is something that is much bigger because it's, as you said, it's energy is a basic social right. I would even go further and say that it's a basic human right. I agree. And what we need to do, Maureen, is to make sure that every political party has got eradicating energy poverty in the manifestos for the next European election. And how do you, will you make that happen? We will start in February. We will work with the political parties to make sure that it's in there. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Teresa. It's always so inspiring to speak with you. I'm so glad to say that you're my friend and we have having this conversation from time to time. Is there anything you would like to add to wrap up this conversation? Just to say that I'm delighted with the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Obviously, I'm not a member of the European Parliament anymore, but would like to contribute in any way in terms of making sure that our poorest people are protected. But the work that you're doing, Marine, and, and NGOs is excellent. And I'm very proud of the fact that we have lots of good women doing this work as well. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, women in energy, uh, energetic women. And you know how much I love a power daisy. And uh, that's why you you were on my list of speakers. You're, you have been on my list of speakers since about two years. Because yes, I started this podcast about two years ago. Wow, time flies. Well done, you. Thank you so much, Teresa. Have a great end of the week and uh, see you soon then. Thank you so much. See you soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.